0: Our reading this morning will be from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, Some of you might remember, uh, as Todd was finishing up the the Casket Empty series, the empty part of that that series, he skipped over a book. Uh, That book was Hebrews. And the reason he did that was to give Gavin Macbeth an opportunity to uh, teach and preach from that book um, on a Sunday. Um, The particular Sunday he was supposed to preach, um, he had uh, personal um, uh, restrictions that kept him from, from preaching that day. So he's going to give it to us today. So we have the privilege of having Gavin Macbeth um, speak to us. Gavin has been a member of this church, or attending at least uh, 18 years, him and his his wife and three kids. Uh, Gavin has served as a deacon uh, in our church. He's also uh, taught adult Sunday schools. He's taught youth Sunday schools. He's um, uh, opened up his home. Him and his wife have opened up their homes many times for Super Bowl parties. Some of you may have been there. Um, So we look forward to hearing from Gavin. Gavin, please come forward and give us the word. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you. So I guess it turns out that if you want to preach in this church, all you have to do is attend it for 18 years. (laughs) So let's uh, let's just start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I just... Thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word today and to um, just really unpack uh, what is in the book of Hebrews. But I just pray that this um, delving into your word would just be a source of encouragement for each one of us uh, here today and online. Just pray that uh, the words of assurance of faith that come in the book of Hebrews uh, would just really speak to our souls at this time, I pray in your name, amen. So it's actually particularly um, exciting for me to be preaching today because it's a day in which Ian Whitfield is leading worship. And I've actually known Ian uh, the whole time that I've been at Hope. um, And he's been just a a great friend to me and a a great mentor over the years. Um, But if you know Ian, if you wanna get in any way deep with Ian, right, he tends to ask a certain question. And that is, what is the state of your soul? And I sort of asked that question as I was preparing this sermon and um, I was left with the thought that the state of my soul right now is just one of real heaviness. And I don't know if you're the same, but I suspect that a lot of people in this room are also, uh, the state of your soul is, is heavy right now because the state of the world is heavy, right? We're in a very troubled time right now. There's a war going on in in the Ukraine. We're just emerging from a global pandemic. Um, And even emerged, we're still living in some degree of anxiety that the next variant will emerge, and we'll be right back in it again. Um, We're also living in extremely divided times. Um, People are divided over so many issues, and the very concept of truth is beginning to erode. You read a news article and you don't know whether you can trust it because the source is biased. Um, And so there's just this overall disquiet, um, I would say, in in, in my soul these days. And I also feel like we're entering into a time in which Christian persecution is uh, starting more so than I can remember at any other point in my life. And that's because the very principles on which our faith is based are being questioned and, um, and sort of eroding in our current society. And the problem is it's, even that is confusing because um, some of the vocal leaders uh, in this country and around the world that claim to speak in the name of Christianity often do it in a very harsh or hateful way. And so then you start to become embarrassed to associate yourself uh, with Christianity. but even when you do try to associate yourself with Christianity, you live in fear that you're gonna get labeled, right? You're gonna get labeled as a homophobe or as a misogynist um, based on on what you believe. And so the question is, you know, what is the state of your soul in the midst of all this? And what does the Bible have to say to us um, in times like this? Well, it turns out that this is essentially the state that the world was in when the book of Hebrews was written. So you may recall from three sermons ago that uh, the book of Hebrews was one of the general epistles. Um, It's the last seven books of of the Bible before the book of Revelation. And um, as a general epistle, it was written uh, to churches in general, not to a a specific church or a specific individual. And it was written in the year AD 65. So you remember that Acts ends in AD 62, right? So Acts ends with Paul in prison uh, preaching um, to those that, that hear, and then that's kind of where the history in the Bible ends off. And so to understand the context of the book of Hebrews, we have to turn to extra-biblical texts and find out what was the state of the world in AD 65. So, Acts ends in AD 62 in Rome, but we now turn to Jerusalem. Um, and So what happened in AD 62? Well, at that time, there was a new high priest. Um, his name was Ananus. And he was a descendant of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So Caiaphas, who you may recall, was the high priest when Jesus was crucified. And so Annas also was very much against this concept that Jesus was the Messiah. And all around him, the Jews in Jerusalem, there was a sect that was developing that was claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And sort of one of the leaders of that sect was James, the brother of Jesus. And so Annas arrested James, brought him in, in front of the Sanhedrin and forced James to try, or tried to force James to rebuke the Christians and tell them to stop saying that Jesus was the Messiah. But instead, as you can predict, James did not do that. He testified that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and that he was seated at God's right hand in heaven. And so in response to that, James was stoned to death. So that's one of these many uh, apostles being um, persecuted and, and ultimately martyred for their faith. And in fact, as he was dying, James actually called out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, which is the very words of Jesus uh, when he was dying uh, from Luke 23. And then on the other end of the world, um, in Rome, uh, two years later, um, you may recall from Todd's sermon that on July 18, AD 64, the great fire of Rome broke out. And that fire burned for three days and it devastated the city, including the three central districts of Rome, and, of course, people blame Nero, the emperor, for lighting that fire, thinking he was basically clearing the way for his new palace. And so, in response, Nero turned the blame towards the Christians and, in fact, blamed the Christians for setting the blaze. And that started a huge wave of persecution. In fact, Nero did something horrible. He actually took all the Christians and burned them as torches to light his banquets um, at, his, at his palace. And then the writers in Rome around that time started to malign Christianity and falsely accused Christians of, of atheism because they didn't believe in the Roman gods, of cannibalism because they ate and drank the blood of their god, right? Um, and he slandered them um, in that way. And so this is the context that the book of Hebrews was written in. And they us say it was written to Hebrew Christians, hence the name. Um, And if you look at who the author of Hebrews is, it's actually something that's still debated. It's not very clear who the author is, but it's clear that the author is not Paul, because the literary style differs from that of Paul. Um, One clue is that he actually uses 169 Greek words that don't appear in any other book in the New Testament. So it must be a different author from any other book but the author is very clearly very familiar with the scriptures, particularly the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and frequently makes references to scripture all the way through the book of Hebrews. So there's actually 31 um, scriptural citations and 75 clear allusions to scripture uh, throughout the book. Um, but it's also clear that he knows Paul very well, right? His theological views are very similar to Paul's. Um, he has Jesus as the son of God, uh, He views the Death and resurrection of Jesus is central to Christianity, and he also emphasizes the importance of faith in coming to uh, salvation. And finally, the book of Hebrews actually ends with a greeting to Timothy, so he must be uh, in that circle of friends. And so the best guesses are that the author is either Barnabas, Silas, or most prominently people uh, have the view that it was Apollos. So if you don't know who Apollos is, he's actually alluded to um, in Acts, in the book of Acts, um, chapter 18, it says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through faith, uh, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So. This letter was written to Jewish Christians in general, and probably to Jews living in Alexandria, uh, which I think is uh, on the map here. So if you don't know, Alexandria is actually in Egypt, uh, so not far from Jerusalem, but down uh, at the bottom of the the world of uh, the New Testament uh, 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 Christian world. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, the author, basically assumes that the reader has a very strong knowledge of scripture, of Old Testament scripture, Uh, and specifically the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, uh, which uh, were written by Moses. So he assumes that they know about Abraham and his descendants and how they became the nation of Israel. He assumes that they know that Moses led the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, to Mount Sinai. Uh, He assumes that they know about Moses receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai and forming a covenant with God, how Moses built the tabernacle in the wilderness, um, and how priests offered sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people, and also how the nation of Israel wandered through the desert uh, for years, uh, ultimately seeking to enter the promised land, but how they didn't actually enter the promised land because of their disobedience. And so all of this is assumed knowledge as you read the book of uh, Hebrews. And so what I would encourage you to do this afternoon, um, and I know most of you won't do it because I never do it when the preacher tells me to do this, but um, after you've heard the sermon, go back and read the book of Hebrews cover to cover because it's actually really interesting to do in a single reading. It's actually not that long. It takes you about 15 to 20 minutes to read the book of Hebrews. Um, And I did it several times in in preparing for the sermon, and it gives you that big picture view of the overall uh, book and um, what it's about. But, you know, as I said, clearly this book is um, during a time of persecution, and this is alluded to at several points throughout the book. And so um, we have up on the screen in Hebrews 10, um, the author writes, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So the Jewish Christians were facing persecution for their faith in Jesus, and that explains both the purpose and the structure of the book. So if you pop up the next slide, um, so this is the overall structure Of Hebrews Um, and there's really two main goals of Hebrews the first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to everyone and everything Um, and so that's really the bulk of the book right from chapters 1 through the end of chapter 10 is all about um, Jesus being exalted right Uh, proving that Jesus is superior to all these things in the Old Testament And then the second goal of the book is an exhortation, an exhortation to be faithful to Jesus um, and to persevere in the face of persecution. So the book starts with an introduction. It's just a couple of verses um, at the beginning that immediately starts by exalting Jesus as superior and as God incarnate. And then there's four main sections in which the author shows that Jesus is superior uh, to people or um, to rituals in the Old Testament. So the first um, is that he shows that Jesus is superior to angels and the Torah. That's chapters 1 and 2. The second is that he's superior to Moses and the promised land. Then to the Levitical priests and to Melchizedek. And then finally, Jesus is superior to the animal sacrifices and to the Mosaic Covenant. And based on that, um, we now have full assurance of our faith. And so it ends with the last three uh, chapters of really an exhortation to persevere, um, putting our faith in Jesus um, in the face of this persecution. So let's start with... Uh, this opening, because the opening is really just amazing uh, words of scripture. So if you pop up the next slide, uh, this is the opening to Hebrews, and it's chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So quite a, a, a statement here, right? That through Jesus the world was created so clearly immediately um, saying that Jesus is not just a man but he is in fact God incarnate and then he ends with this um, really incredible sentence he said he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power so what the author is doing here is he's creating the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. It's basically saying that Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or what the imprint on a wax seal is to the signet ring that made that imprint. And then, as we go through the next four sections, um, I want to keep one concept in mind that the author actually introduces in chapter 8, but actually applies to all four of these main sections in Hebrews. And that is that everything that was established in the Old Testament, the law, the promised land, the priesthood, and the entire system of animal sacrifice, that all of this was actually just a shadow of reality. That this was a shadow of what actually goes on in heaven um, and would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. So with that as background, right, let's dive into the first section. So in the first section, the author starts in the very next verse by comparing Jesus to angels. And if you can pop up the next slide, um, basically says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this may seem a little bizarre, right? So why would the author be comparing Jesus to angels? Um, you were starting out this whole thing. Uh, why would you start with angels? And To understand that, you need to understand that to the Jewish Christians that were reading this, um, they firmly understood that angels were the direct messengers of God throughout the whole Testament. And in particular, in Deuteronomy 33, it makes allusion to the fact that angels actually delivered the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and the first five books of the Bible, essentially, to Moses on Mount Sinai. So the angels were actually the messengers of God delivering God's word. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see also prophets, right? And in many of those stories of the prophets, we see angels delivering the message to the prophets that they then share uh, with mankind. And so the author is saying that Jesus, in coming to earth, that he gave his personal, you know, he gave his message on earth through his sermons, right, he had three years of ministry before his death, that his teaching on earth was superior to angels um, who had delivered the Old Testament. So he's causing the reader to pay attention to what Jesus was preaching, right, his message of salvation that he preached while on earth um, as being superior to the message that the angels had delivered to Moses and to all the prophets in the Old Testament. But he also goes a step beyond that. He says not only that, but Jesus is actually superior to the Torah itself. So the Torah was the word of God. And yet the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus was superior to the Torah. Um, And that again brings up that concept that the Torah is actually just a shadow of God's true word. Right? And so if you remember in John chapter 1, uh, verses 1, 2, and then 14, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then if you jump to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So basically, the author of Hebrews <laughs> is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is the word of God. The Torah was just a shadow of God's word. Jesus is God's word. Um, And so he's holding up Jesus as superior to angels who delivered God's word and to God's word itself, the Torah, because Jesus is the true word of God. But the other thing, um, and this is the uncomfortable part of Hebrews, right? The other thing is as we walk through these sections, we first see the author holding up Jesus as superior to these things, but then these sections also carry with them a warning. And some of these warnings are quite uncomfortable. Um, and so if you read through Hebrews, you know, in your setting this afternoon, um, you will find these very uncomfortable phrases. And so we'll come to the first um, of these. So the warning um, in the section dealing with angels, is: it says, For the, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So basically what he's saying is that uh, since the message delivered by angels, the Torah was reliable, it was God's word, and throughout the Old Testament, um, the Jews strove to keep God's word and follow the Torah. Well, if Jesus has now come with, A message of salvation right the true Word of God isn't it you know if the consequences of disobeying God's Word in the Old Testament uh, were severe what's the consequence of ignoring Jesus and the message that he brings of salvation so again it's setting up this warning in each case that Jesus is superior but also don't ignore this message because the consequences now are even higher And then as we go through chapter 2, the author also doesn't just talk about Jesus as superior, but also marvels at the fact that Jesus voluntarily gave up his status um, to become human, to suffer and to die. And so although he's superior to angels, he actually gave up that status. So in chapter 2, verse 9, he writes that Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels, but now he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And then the chapter concludes with the verse that we all know very well. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in Jesus, we see both God's glory and God's humility as Jesus joined himself to humanity's tragic, uh, tragic fate. Then as we move to the second section, the author now compares Jesus to Moses. So Moses, of course, was a central figure to the Jews. Right? It was Moses led the people out of slavery, um, out of Egypt. Um, It was he that led them to Mount Sinai, where God gave um, Moses the Torah. And it was Moses that led them through the wilderness. And not insignificantly, it was Moses that built the tabernacle. And so what is the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was the tent um, that Moses built following the blueprint that he was given on Mount Sinai And the tabernacle became the place in which God's presence dwelt as the Israelites wandered through the desert. And ultimately the same blueprint that was used to build the tabernacle is the blueprint that Solomon used to build the temple. Um, And so the Jewish readers reading this were very familiar um, with Moses as a central character. In fact, he was viewed as a savior, right? He saved the people from slavery. And he was the one that built the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt among them. And so um, in this section, right, um, again, the author elevates Jesus as being superior to Moses, says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so this harkens back to the introduction, right, where Jesus said, uh, where where the author says that Jesus, through Jesus, the world was created, right? In fact, the entire universe was created through Jesus. And so the author is basically saying here that Moses is part of creation. He's actually the house. Jesus is the author of that house, the creator of that house, the builder of that house. And then once again, we get introduced to this concept that the tabernacle. Is actually just a shadow of what's going on in heaven, right? The tabernacle is a blueprint for the throne of grace in heaven. And um, the other key point here, right, is that Jesus is superior to Moses, the builder of the tabernacle, but he's also superior to the promised land. So the readers would have been very familiar with the story that the nation of Israel actually failed to enter the promised land. So they got all the way to the promised land, but because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, when the spies came back from their scouting mission um, and said, you know, this is too difficult for us, because of that unbelief, um, all of those uh, Israelites that, wanted, that came out of Egypt, um, other than the really young children, uh, failed to enter the promised land. And in fact, Moses himself also d- disobeyed God, and he failed to enter the promised land. Um, and so... There's a very strong warning that comes um, in this section. And that is a warning that's actually quoted from the book of Psalms, Psalms 95. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And by the rebellion, he's referring to uh, the Israelites rebelling against God in the desert and failing to enter the promised land. And so what the author is saying is once again, that the stakes are higher here, right? That we're currently, in a wilderness-like situation, right? We're currently in this world amid persecution, and if we ever want to enter the promised land, the promised land is actually our eternal rest. And so um, even the promised land um, back in the Old Testament was a shadow of heaven uh, where our eternal rest will be with God. So let's not rebel like the Israelites did and lose the opportunity to enter the promised land. And so. It comes to this verse, um, chapter four, verse 11, that says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So question then is, how do we strive? How do we strive to enter that rest? Because we know that our salvation comes through faith, but that doesn't mean uh, that that's the end of the story. We continually as Christians strive uh, to enter the rest. That's the whole process of sanctification. And so the answer to that is in the very next verse. Um, And these are some of the scariest verses in in Hebrews and ones that we're quite familiar with. Uh, So if you go to the next slide. Um, And that is a verse that we often equate with just the importance of the Bible, but is in fact a direct allusion to how we as Christians strive to enter that rest. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." So that's scary, right? That's scary and a little bit, um, well, disquieting, I guess, right? Because we've now just heard all, right, our Casket Empty series, we've heard all these stories in the Old Testament about how the Israelites failed to follow the Word of God, right, they failed over and over again throughout the Old Testament. For 2,000 years they failed to, um, to obey the Word of God, and now if we're to strive to enter that rest, aren't we gonna fall into the same fate that um, the Old Testament Israelites fell into of failing to enter the promised land, and in fact, being exiled because of their disobedience, uh, their failure to follow God. Well, this is why you don't read the Bible in sound bites, right? Uh, why, even though this is a good verse to memorize, uh, you should make sure you go on to the next verse. <laughs> and so if you go to the next verse, um, it's a very different picture, right? It says the word of God is living and active, right? It pierces to um, our soul, Right? We're to strive to follow the word of God. But it then gives us hope, Right, hope and assurance. It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. It doesn't say, let us be perfect. Let us follow every law in the Old Testament. Right. It says, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession being um, our faith, our hope uh, that rests in, in uh, our a Confession of faith in Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then comes probably one of the best sentences uh, in Hebrews. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's the key con- uh, concepts here, that the Old Testament was characterized by trying to follow the law and falling short. But now through Jesus, um, it's not, our, our salvation is not secured by absolute you know, uh, following the law, but it's secured by grace and by mercy. And so, of course, this section also alludes to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. And that brings us to the third section, uh, which is where Jesus is compared to Levitical priests. And in this section it says that Jesus is superior to priests, all who come from the line of Aaron, and Aaron was descended, he was part of the tribe of Levi. And the role of priests, of course, in the Old Testament was to represent the people of God and to offer sacrifices on their behalf to atone for their sins. But the issue in the Old Testament was that the priests themselves were human, right? And so the priests were morally flawed and had to, sacrifice, uh, had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And so this next section begins with the author explaining that all Levitical priests are beset with weakness, which is why they have to offer uh, sacrifices for their own sins as well. So it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Jesus, however, is superior. He's the ultimate priest. He is not beset with weakness, and so he's been made perfect through his sufferings, which is what it says going on to verses nine to 10. It says, but Jesus being made perfect became the eternal source, um, of the source of eternal salvation To all who obey him being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek okay so that's a a fairly um, complicated sentence right that last one so let's just pack down there's two two parts of that that are a little bit confusing so the first is that it says that Jesus being made perfect became the eternal source of eternal salvation Uh, but you ask yourself well Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Um, Why did he have to be made perfect? So to understand that, um, it's really the the word perfect um, in here, in this context, actually is more appropriately translated complete. So Jesus was made complete through his suffering um, so that he could then become our eternal source of salvation. So um, how is it that he can sympathize with our weakness? So... Jesus became man, not just to immediately go and die on the cross for our salvation, but to experience everything that we experience on earth, Right to experience true humanity. He became fully human, and he started as a baby. Right, He grew up in the same way that we do, and so at every stage in his life, encountered all the same struggles and pains that we encounter. He had to live in a world in which injustice occurs on a regular basis and in which people experience pain, and often undeserved pain. And as he matured, he experienced everything that we experience. He grew up as a Jew in an oppressive Roman regime, and he had to work for a living, right? He was a carpenter. And then ultimately, at the end of his life, he experienced more injustice than I presume any of us will experience, right? He's falsely accused, and he is tortured to death um, on a cross. And so this is how Jesus became complete by being exposed to all the temptations we're exposed to, being exposed to all the pain and suffering in this world that we're exposed to, so that he can sympathize with us in our weakness and be um, a true high priest, right? Someone that can intercede with us, uh, intercede for us because he knows what we experienced. Um, and that's really the concept that is being communicated in uh, these phrases that Jesus is um, the great high priest for us that intercedes for us. But there's also this weird phrase in the order of Melchizedek. So what's the point of that? And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. Um, simply to say that Melchizedek um, was the king of Salem. This is actually a story that occurs all the way back in, in Genesis 14 in which Abram and Lot have just settled, um, they've just separated. Abram has settled uh, in Canaan and Lot has gone to the Jordan Valley and is now in a, a town called Sodom. Um, but right after that, that uh, occurrence, there's a massive war that breaks out. So five kings get together, and four kings get together, and there's this big massive battle between the five kings and the four kings, and the four kings win, um, and they take Lot as a hostage, and they take all his possessions. And so Abraham hears this news, and so he quickly uh, gathers 318 of his best uh, men, and they chase after um, these armies and they defeat them and he rescues Lot and brings him back. And when he does that, he is met by the king of Salem. And the king of Salem is this guy, Melchizedek, and he's referred to as um, priest of God most high. And when Abraham meets him, he actually gives him a 10th of everything. This is the first tithe in the Bible, right? He gives him a 10th of everything. So that's the only mention of Melchizedek in uh, in the Torah, but then he's mentioned again in Psalm 110, and this is a prophetic psalm that's talking about the Messiah, and in this psalm it talks about Messiah as coming from the line of David, and David was descended from Judah, so he's from the tribe of Judah, and um, in this messianic psalm, it says um, it points to um, the Messiah as being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so it's a direct allusion to the fact that the Messiah would not be from the Levitical line of priests, but rather from the Judaic uh, line, right? From uh, the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And so in this, um, Jesus is fulfilling these uh, Prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, that he will be the ultimate high priest that's not like the Levitical line of priests that are all flawed, that have to offer sacrifices for themselves, uh, but he's in the order of Melchizedek, uh, which was superior to Abraham because Abraham offered him tithes, and so he is superior to all the Levitical priests. But then this section also ends with a warning, and the warning here is a little more implicit than explicit, Um, and the warning here says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the implication of these verses is that if you do not draw near to God through Jesus, you will not be saved. And then finally, moving to the fourth section, uh, the fourth section, Jesus is compared to animal sacrifice um, and to the Mosaic covenant. And so in this section, uh, just as a summary verse um, in Hebrews 10, the author writes, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has uh, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And so this is really where this concept again of rituals in the Old Testament being a shadow of what is to come um, is really important. So why did God institute this whole system of animal sacrifice? Because in today's world that's considered barbaric, right? It's a completely foreign concept to us that we would uh, kill animals in order to atone for our sin. But this whole system was set up, and the nation of Israel practiced this for hundreds and hundreds of years, all as a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do to take away our sin. So they were very familiar with the concept that the sin of the people was put on the sacrifice and then that animal was killed on behalf of the people. That's done every year on the Day of Atonement, but daily as well. so that was all the foreshadowing of Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, that one perfect sacrifice that would take away our sins permanently, um, and you know that once for all time uh, sacrifice that Jesus had. So again, all the animal sacrifice system in the Old Testament was a shadow of what was to come. It was flawed. The real sacrifice was Jesus. And so finally, this ends with um, Yet again, another warning and a scary one, right? It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And if you keep reading, it's even scarier. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, again, the implication is let us not abandon that... Sacrifice that Jesus has made for us if we do that and then deliberately keep on sinning um, We are trampling on that sacrifice and rejecting the Savior that has um, died once for all uh, for our um, You know for forgiveness of our sins And so the section ends with something that Ian introduced last week right and that is that um, in the Old Testament, there were numerous covenants made between God and man uh, throughout the Old Testament, but the central covenant uh, to the nation of Israel was the Mosaic Covenant. This was the covenant given to the nation of Israel um, by Moses on Mount Sinai, and it was a conditional one. If you obey me, if you follow these laws, if you do all these rituals, I will be with you, I will be your God. But if you fail to do this, um, I will not be your God, I will be against you, and you will be... Um, thrown into exile, which is what happened. And so that introduces this concept of the New Covenant and this is central uh, to the end of these uh, sections in Hebrews, in in Hebrews chapter 10, where they talk about the New Covenant. And in fact, the concept of this New Covenant is not just introduced here in the New Testament, it's not introduced um, by the writer of Hebrews, it's actually prophesied 600 years earlier uh, by Jeremiah. And so he quotes Jeremiah, and so what I'm gonna do is not quote from Hebrews, but actually read the passage from Jeremiah. So it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So that is the assurance of, uh, of Hebrews, that is the new covenant um, that was um, prophesied all along. This was part of God's plan uh, all the way back in the Old Testament, this is not something new. God's plan was always to form a new covenant with his people, a covenant characterized by grace and mercy, uh, rather than by ritual and by legalistically following the law. So I'm gonna skip a little ahead since uh, we're running pretty late on time um, and jump to uh, where things end um, in the last section of Hebrews because the last section of Hebrews is all an exhortation for us um, to now, confident in our assurance of faith, um, to really persevere in the face of persecution. And so what happens in Hebrews 11, as many of you know, is it's a big litany of all the people in the Bible who lived by faith who, you know, had hope in God um, and um, lived even though they did not see um, what was being promised to them by God, right? So it's the hall of fame of faith uh, throughout uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And then that leads directly into some of the greatest verses in the Bible. And that is Hebrews 12, uh, 1 and 2. And so if you can put that up, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let's run with endurance the race that's set before us. And we've been talking about all these things in the Old Testament that were just a shadow of what was to come. Well, this world is a shadow of what's to come. This is not the end, right? This is just the shadow, the imperfect shadow. The true world, the new creation, um, is coming in heaven. And so, This is an encouragement for all of us who are living in the state of disquiet in this world, right? Um, What are we to do, right? The answer is to fix your eyes on Jesus um, because he's the author and perfecter of our faith and that's where we're heading, right? And this verse speaks to me particularly because it's a running illusion. (laughs) So um, as some of you may know, I'm a a runner. There's quite a few runners in this church. Um, And I got into ultra long distance running. Um, And back in 2012 I did something really stupid. I um, had never run any longer than a marathon and I signed up for a 100 mile race through the mountains of Colorado. And so I went uh, to try and run this race and I ended up dropping out. Um, and dropped out at about mile 60. And that's what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us not to do, right? We're running this race This life on earth is an ultra marathon, right? It's this long distance race, and we're going to be beset with trials and tribulations and difficult times, but he's encouraging us not to give up, right? To set our eyes on Jesus. And so what happened is, in in 2016, I trained for four years to try and finish that race, and I went back in 2016 to do this race again. And once again, I got to one of the hardest parts of the race, it was 56 miles into the race, and I started throwing up, and then, you know, basically went to a medical tent and sat for 45 minutes trying to recover. And I thought I was done, right? I thought I would have to drop out again. And then I started visualizing something. <laughs> and there's something a little bit peculiar about the ultramarathon world. So for some reason, if you finish a 100-mile race, the reward is a belt buckle. <laughs> okay. And so as I'm sitting there in the medical tent, I think, I gotta get that belt buckle, right? And I started visualizing that belt buckle. And I still have 44 miles to run, but I'm gonna get that belt buckle, okay? So this is it, this is the belt buckle, all right? And you know what's sad? I've never even worn this buckle, <laughs> right? I mean, where are you gonna wear this, right? But if for me, fixing my eyes on that belt buckle enabled me to like get up and run another 44 miles, right? How much more Fixing our eyes on Jesus will enable us to finish this ultra-marathon that we've been tasked with finishing, right? We're in a world that's full of pain and suffering, um, disquiet, and now persecution. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, because that is the ultimate reward. That is where we're heading. And so, I don't know where um, you're at right now. Um, As I said, my state of soul (laughs) over the last couple years has been Uh, One of being heavy, right? Of being really weighed down by uh, the current state of the world. Um, And if that's your state today, hopefully you find encouragement in these words, uh, particularly in the end of uh, Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, that this is a shadow. Um, The real world is to come, fix your eyes on Jesus. And so as we end today, What I'm going to do is pray and then leave about a minute of silence um, just to reflect on what you've heard, uh, reflect on what your state of soul is, um, and on fixing your eyes on Jesus. And if you feel led, uh, there's actually going to be two um, prayer teams, one in the um, front right and the other in the back left, um, that are there to pray with you. And as uh, the uh, worship band comes up afterwards, um, if you're so led, just go to one of those stations, um, and even while the song's playing, uh, make your way over there. Um, reflect on what your state of soul is um, and you know what encouragement you may get from fixing your eyes on Jesus. So let's pray. Dear Lord, as I just reflect on, on the world, just thank you for the assurance that this world is is not our final home, that this world is just a shadow of what is to come. And Lord, I just thank you for coming in in human form and, and experiencing everything that we experience on a daily basis in this life, of being exposed to all the temptations that we're exposed to, for being exposed to pain, to being exposed to injustice. And I thank you that you can sympathize with us in these weaknesses. And Lord, I pray that As we go into this week, that we would just fix our eyes on you. And know that uh, this is not our home. Our home is to come. And Lord, I pray that we would find comfort in that. Amen.